Welcome to the Weird Era podcast, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today we're talking to author Katya Apikina about her novel Mother Doll. Katya is a novelist, screenwriter, and translator. Her debut novel, The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish, was named a best book of 2018 by Kirkus, BuzzFeed, LitHub, and others. Was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and has been translated into Spanish, Catalan, French, German, and Italian. She is the recipient of an Elizabeth George Grant, an Olin Fellowship, the Alina Wilson Prize, and a third-year fiction fellowship from Washington University in St. Louis, where she did her MFA. She has done residencies at VCCA, Playa U Cross, and Fondation is how I would say it in Quebec, and but I seems weird to do so in English, uh, Jan Mikalski in Switzerland. Born in Moscow, she moved to the U.S. when she was three years old and currently lives in Los Angeles. Mother Doll is her second novel. About Mother Doll, Genia is adrift in Los Angeles, pregnant with a baby her husband doesn't want, while her Russian grandmother and favorite person in the world is dying on the opposite coast. She's deeply disconnected from herself and her desires when she gets a strange call from Paul, a psychic medium who usually specializes in channeling dead pets, with a message from the other side. Genia's great-grandmother Irina, a Russian revolutionary, has approached him from a cloud of ancestral grief, desperate to tell her story and receive absolution. As Irina begins her confession, with the help of a purgatorial chorus of grieving Russian ghosts, Zhenya awakens to aspects of herself she hadn't been willing to confront. But does either woman have what the other needs to understand their predicament? Or will Irina be stuck in limbo, with Zhenya plagued by ancestral trauma and her children after her? Ferociously funny and deeply moving, Mother Doll forces us to look at how painful secrets stamp themselves from one generation to the next. Katya's second novel is a family epic and a meditation on motherhood, immigration, identity, and war. Hi, Katya. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, I guess, you know, with the fair warning that we ask super chill questions on Weird Era, I guess I'm sort of wondering if you think about the ways intergenerational drama is genetic. Uh, and it's obviously not a black and white qu question with a black and white answer, but I just love to hear your thoughts on the matter because it is a sort of discourse that's out there that um, I, I know I have thoughts on and I just love to hear yours. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I, I think if you're, I think my grandmother, when my grandmother was pregnant with my mother, my mother would have already had all of like the eggs in her body that one of which would then become me, right? So like three generations of, you know, what my grandmother was doing at the time physically would have influenced, you know, like genetically who I become, you know, just like in terms of the egg itself. And so I don't know a ton about epigenetics, but I do know that like trauma affects your DNA, you know, and that that is then passed down to your children and your children's children. And it can be um, 
it can be the strange thing that happens too when you're like many generations removed from whatever like original kind of events you're still feeling the effects of it like ripples you know but you don't even know what the original event is like you don't have any context for it so you have these like feelings of like you know you're like constantly for example like fight or flight type of activated and like you don't know why you're having it but you're living in like peaceful times you're not living during a war for example but if your ancestors did you know if your recent ancestors did and that's just kind of passed on to you and then also probably through nurture as well but like I think just genetically that kind of stuff is um is in you um I think so yeah, too. And, and it's interesting question. because I think when we talk about genetics, we're sort of limited in our scope when we think about, and I'm no expert either, but I think we, you know, we like to look at physicality. We're like, you got so-and-so's eyes, you you look like your grandmother, et cetera. And we don't really, you know, we don't really have the proper science or maybe we do. And I'm coming from a really uninformed point of saying you have your grandmother's stubbornness, which again, could very possibly be a consequence of their historical context. And the like maybe stubbornness was an evolutionary behavior that they had to develop in, in order to survive. And you yourself as a descendant no longer need that in your environment to survive, but have inherited it. Have I think you put it in a really interesting way where you're like, like, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you said, but it's like, it, it's, it hasn't been forgotten. Even if you don't know about it, even if you didn't realize it, it hasn't been forgotten, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, so my grandmother, when she died, she left me these memoirs that she had written. Um, and that's not entirely actually true. She had left me those memoirs before she died, but I didn't start reading them until after she died. And um, was there a reason for that? You I'm know, sure. I've thought about that. Yeah, I think there was definitely a reason for that because, like, I'm a very curious person. I'm very nosy. The fact that I wouldn't, like, immediately want to know what's in her memoirs is, like, very unusual for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was just this resistance. Like, it was almost like physical, like this kind of, I don't want to hear about it, you know? And I think because it seemed like, oh, well, once I hear about it, it'll be like my problem. Like I have to take this on whatever is in there. I have to carry it, you know? And then I finally read it and it was like so interesting because I realized, oh, I've already been carrying all of this, you know? I just didn't know that I was carrying all of this. And then when I actually was like seeing it and, um, it was in Russian and I was translating it into English so that like if my if my daughter ever wants to read it, you know, she she can one day. But it was just like so interesting because it was like, oh, there's so many things that are so similar between me and my grandmother, who was who not like a professional writer at all. But she had this like there was just this like sense of the world as like a um a I think there was like kind of a fearfulness because of a lot of the traumatic things that happened to her that I've been carrying too. And just this sort of like sense of danger constantly in situations that are not dangerous, you know? And like the thing that was so interesting in her memoir is like the worst things that could happen to a person happened to her, you know, like she, 
her entire family was killed in the war. She had to like walk across, like from Poland, she was in Poland. She was on her own. She had to just like walk across Russia to like escape the Nazis. And um, she was like completely alone in the world. Like all of that stuff happened to her. But then like the things that she would like kind of give attention to are just things that seem suddenly like dangerous to her were things that just were actually quite innocuous. And it was like all of that stuff was just projected outward onto other things, you know? And then like, there's all this description of like my dad and how she was worried about him in summer camp and like about his like bowel movements and stuff. And like that got more space in her memoirs than like, you know, these like big events that happened to her. Um, and like, that was just so interesting too, you know? So I don't know. And then I started, so I did this kind of project where I was talking to her basically through her memoir I was annotating it and I published an excerpt of this in um the LA Review of Books so I like was translating it and I was kind of like arguing with her basically in the margins and it was like so interesting to do it that way because in real life like I'm so conflict averse and like we never had really like deep honest conflict-ridden conversations, you know? But then, like, on paper, it felt like I was having, like, a deeper conversation with her than I did in real life, you know? And part of that, too, is, like, I was younger. You know, she she passed away. She had um, also dementia before she passed away. So, like, I was much younger when, like, I could have had those conversations, and I don't think I was ready or really, like, could understand what I would even say. But, um yeah, I definitely am, like, very aware of, like, carrying her story inside of my physical body. Do you think about, sorry, you mentioned you had a daughter. Do you think about her carrying it as well? I mean, she must be, she's a child at this point. And I yeah, she's almost 10. It's so funny. Like, she's, um, yeah, like, I definitely think about, like, oh, God, what am I doing? Um, passing on to her, you know, like, how am I traumatizing her? What am I like, what of my shit am I like, giving her that she then has to carry and like work through in therapy, you know, before she has if she has kids of her own that so she doesn't like pass it on to them. But like, I don't know, my daughter is very like, wise, um, and very emotionally intelligent. And also, I feel like kids are raised I'm raising her very differently than I was raised. And also, I think, like, kids are raised with a lot more, um, like, emotional intelligence now. Like, more emphasis on feeling. Like, it's it's okay to have feelings. It's, a, you know, it's part of part of life is, like, processing those feelings. It, it's true, but there's... And it's wonderful, obviously, in so many ways to see the generation after you, like, do better than you. But it sort of freaks me out, too, like, talking to, like, a six-year-old who's more in tune with their emotional language than, like, you know, I conceivably am as, like, the adult. There's something kind of, I don't know, I guess scary about it on some level while at the same time very impressive and cool. Totally. I feel like she's constantly telling me stuff where I'm just like, oh, (laughs) that makes sense. Like, you know, she just sees things so much 
more clearly sometimes I don't know and like also just more like generously I think Mm -hmm. um yeah it's like very funny to hear her just like explain feelings to me (laughs) and then I'm just like what is this water coming out of my eyes (laughs) right right you're like that's a very good way of putting it um so you know a lot of the novel normalizes quote-unquote bad things uh, you know, a prior generation not being as shocked by anti-Semitism it happens at once in one point. Uh, a woman sparking friendship with another woman while sleeping with her husband. Um, all these kinds of things that are not clearly morally correct. Again, I, I, quote unquote correct. Um, I often wonder, and as we all know, fiction is often looked to as an avenue for elevating empathy in others, you know, etc. But this has also over the years sort of developed into a sort of moral righteousness in many, many ways. And, you know, I'm thinking of the great long debate of like the unlikable or likable character and whatever that means. But I guess I'm thinking, or I, what your book made me think about was what does normalizing bad things do in response to these conversations? Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I don't think of it as normalizing necessarily, mm-hmm. but m- maybe that's not a bad way of describing it. I think like sometimes people really want the author to be like judging the character Mm -hmm. and to be like, see, she's doing a bad thing. She's a bad person, you know, and to make that like very clear so that they're like comfortable because they're like, okay, the author knows that this is that this, but you know, like people are complicated and people do bad things all the time. And I think like your place as an author is to well I don't I don't want to say like just generalize but I feel like with with the, with this particular character you know like I had a lot of empathy for her mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I like agreed with her choices or would want to be like on the receiving end of some of them you know what I mean like I can understand why a person who doesn't feel like they have any power like it doesn't register to them that they can hurt people around them You know what I mean? Because they're just like, but I'm like a victim of my circumstances. Like, how could I hurt anyone? Like, I'm nobody. You know, I have nothing. But so I think that's kind of like her situation. Um, And I think like, you know, people justify bad behavior all the time. And, you know, it is complicated. That's not to say that like in real life, you know, like, if she was a person I knew in real life, I would have opinions about her. <laughs> you know, like if she was my friend, I would I would have opinions about her. But I feel like um, as a but writer, isn't she your friend in so many ways. I, you know, she's really young. She's like in her early twenties, mm. and I feel like she's making lots of choices that are just like Ooh, that. Seems like. <laughs> tricky you know like I don't even know that it's necessarily a bad choice but like you know Mm -hmm. it seems kind of there's a lot of kind of borderline choices where it's like that's tricky like in terms of the ending where we're in her the relationship she's in at the end where it's like does the wife know does the wife not know it's like a very ambiguous to her but like in order to but if she she doesn't want to like have it be clearly defined because then 
It's like the Schrodinger's cat. Like, is the cat dead? Is it not dead? If you actually open the box and look, like you have to then um, behave accordingly. And, and um, you know, there's consequences. And like, she doesn't w- want those. So it's like very understandable to me why she acts badly. Like, it doesn't come from a cruel, you know, there's nothing cruel about her or like she's not doing it from a place of, wanting to hurt anyone else. But I feel like people hurt other people all the time without that being like the express intention, but like, it doesn't make it hurt less, you know, if the person wasn't like specifically doing it to hurt you, but still hurts you, you know, ultimately like what their intentions are. I don't know how much it really matters if you're on the receiving end. I I, th- I I understand you talking about it t- intense sort of, it, but it just sort of reminded me of, of this other question I had. Uh, both characters in this novel, Paul and Irina, though, you know, conceivably very different people, um, they sort of both share an appetite for self-destruction. Um, you know, Paul explores this by damaging his spirit and body by pursuing his exchange with Irina and also with alcoholism. Um, Irina does this with infidelity and, you know, kind of, not being the best to her own mother and prioritizing her grandmother's experience over her own mother's. I sort of wanted to talk to you more about your thoughts about this kind of appetite. Um, and it's so common in destructive people. How can feeling worse almost feel better? Yeah, you mean Jane and not Irina, right? That yes. They both have like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. both have a self-destructive streak. I mean... I don't even know. Are there people who don't have self-destructive streaks? <laughs> Do they exist? There are there are messier people than others. Like, you know, as you sort of even pointed out, like you don't totally agree with all of Jenya's actions. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think I... I could do the things that she did, not coming from a morally righteous place, but it sort of haunts me in a way that she willingly walks into. I've certainly done my fair share of things. I, I'm not trying to, you know, say otherwise as we all have, but it seems like, you know, going back to the earlier conversation, she's carrying all this trauma with her. She's going through her own trauma. Um, and much like her relatives and much like Paul, who's not even related to her, um, they lean towards this sort of idea of destruction, of alienating their daughters, of alienating their loved ones, of, ignoring, as you said, ignoring the potential hurt that actions are causing. Um, and it seems, that part seems so intentional. It's, it just seems so sort of typical of people who are in so much pain to act in such a way as if that's a bomb, like reaching for it as if it's like, feels better. I'm sort of thinking about the classics, you know, and it doesn't have to be, I mean, it translates to real life for a reason, it's why I read, but it's a character in stories on television, films and books, the self-destructive character. Um, and they are given these internal monologues as you gave Genia, where they know better, they, they question their own behavior, they wonder why they're doing this horrible thing, um, and yet they, they seek it out anyways, as though it makes them feel better. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like I haven't really thought about it in terms of like how connected is that to her trauma or to her ancestral trauma, but it probably is, you know, just like for Paul, the character of the medium, you know, he also had been through 
a significant trauma because he was like a gay man in New York in the 80s and like his friends around him were all dying from AIDS, you know? And so um, to like live through that and then to, you know, his job is to talk with the dead, right? It just, it feels like, um, it feels like there, yeah, there must be some sort of connection. I don't know, like that desire to self-destruct seems kind of built in to people at the same time, you know, it's like at the same time as their desire to improve. I don't know. I, I feel like it's like the, these things that people are like in this constant tension between those two things, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true, like as a person, um, you know, like I don't write autofiction. I, as a character, would be like very boring. You know, I'm not like super dramatic. My life is not very dramatic, you know. So I feel like with a character, it's like fun to be able to embody your worst impulses, you know, and to like imagine what that would be like. I think that's why people like unlikable characters because they're doing the things that we want on some level to do, but are you know, for whatever reason, are able to stop ourselves from doing, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, we we meet your character, Jenya, at a point in which she's quite concerned, and as you write um, in the book, of reaching or acknowledging a point where life begins in earnest, as, as you write. Those are your words. Um, and I guess I kind of wanted to ask you, just like person to person, and I different person to person, if if you've ever had that moment, and if so, when did life begin in earnest for you? And it and oh, you know yeah. the answer can also be it didn't happen. I I don't know. I'm I'm asking. Yeah, I think that feeling of like life is gonna start and like of you know I'm gonna get to X and life is gonna start mm-hmm. is like such a common feeling and then you get to X and you feel exactly the same and then you find a new you know a new horizon line that you think. When, when you get there, things will be completely different. And, you know, I'm, I just turned 40. I feel like I'm just realizing now, like, um, you know, that life has started, <laughs> you know, it's been, it has already started. It's been going. Um, there isn't like some sort of magical point after which it things feel any different. You know, when you're on the outside looking at other people's lives, it often feels like um, you just experience it so differently than when you get to know them better. And it's like, it's exactly the same, you know, it's the same stuff. Like things ostensibly change and that, but then like really things kind of stay the same. And I mean, I don't know, like I had a chat, you know, I've had these like kind of big milestones happen for me after which my life definitely changed. Like, I'm not saying that my life has been exactly the same since, you know, I was a child or something. Like, becoming a parent really changed my life in, like, practical ways, but also in terms of just, like, thinking of myself as part of, like, a chain of people, you know, like, I think I became, I really started thinking about my own childhood again, in a way that um, I hadn't as an adult. But like, when I saw my daughter, being the ages that 
being the eight, you know, certain ages that I had been that I could remember, like, especially around the time when I, um, immigrated to the U S and like just all these memories started coming up that, um, I don't know if I would call them like traumatic memories, but like they were very just big, you know, these big shifts in my life happened when I came to the U S and, you know, all, all this stuff that I hadn't really given much thought to until I could. And I think also I hadn't given much thought to it. And I think you always kind of see yourself as like the same person throughout your different ages. But when I see like an external, you know, my child at the age of four, and then I can like, I'm like, oh, those things happened to me when I was this little, you know, or six or seven. Now she's, she's nine and a half, but you know, it like seeing, um, how little I was for like a lot of the stuff that I had gone through and sort of remembering it in this new way, brought up a lot of stuff for me. So I, I don't know if that like changed. I don't know that it, yeah, I don't know that, that definitely felt significant. And then when my first book came out, that was like another milestone of like, oh, everything's going to be different. And like, to be honest, a lot of things did become different, but then a lot of things didn't, you know? So I, I feel like you just kind of like adjust to every kind of new situation, but you, it's not that you stay exactly the same, but like you, obviously you change, but like, there's some fundamental things that kind of like that desire for things doesn't go away, even if you're um, like, well, that honestly ties perfectly into, to another question I have, because a big theme in this book is also this idea of exploring multiple personalities over time, <clears throat> multiple lives lived. Um, and this idea that we all shed skin in the different, different chapters of our lives, as you're sort of pointing out with childhood and adulthood. And, um, you know, even me, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I'm 34, but she's certainly not the same person I was when I was 24 or when I was 10 or, you know, keep going back. Um, and I think about this concept a lot and I definitely agree with it. I, and I think it's a beautiful thing about life that we get to live all these different versions um, of, of, of ourselves, but that's just it. I also think about this all the time too. It's still of ourself. Like there's still something singular in all the Katyas and all the Srutis that made, make us who we are that make us sort of still the same person we were when we were 10 and yet absolutely not. Do you know what I mean? Have, do you think about that? Yeah, all the time. And I feel like this book really engages with that too. It's like yeah. you think of yourself as like some sort of coherent self, but, um, y you know, you aren't. There's like a million different aspects of you. Um yeah, I feel like I've heard of just different stuff, like that, just like the bacteria in your, you mm -hmm. know, just like there's so many species inside of you. There's just like so much life in each body, you know. Um, I don't know. Like in the book, the Irina is the character of the great grandmother. And it's just one aspect of this person, you know, the aspect of her that was involved in the revolution that was a teenager. And then that person, you know, like continued a life. She came to the U.S. She had a completely different life after that. And that's not the self that, you know, that's not the part of her that is in this, that is trapped in this purgatory talking through Paul, you know? And I think there's like so many parts of ourselves. And especially if you don't um, 
allow them to exist. You know, if you resist them and you are ashamed of some aspects of yourself, you know, and they just kind of dig in further, I think. And then they're just, they're still there, whether you, you know, they're still there. And they're kind of like, even if you don't want to acknowledge them, they're influencing you, you know, but there's so many different aspects of yourself that also just like change with age and develop. And yeah, it's like so interesting to think about. It's so fun in the book when, um, you know, Jania sees this opportunity of getting answers from Marina um, and Arena is constantly dismissing her. And it was like, I don't know. That's not me. I know that's a question for me, but that's not the me that you're talking to. <laughs> like, this is a waste of time. That was another person. And I found that so, I don't know, so sort of profound. Like, imagine if that was possible, you know, if I could talk to my 20-year-old mother about her 30s and sh- for her to just answer, I don't know. <laughs> and it's frustrating me that you think I know about my life then. Um, it was just a really, it's just a really fun selective moments in the book um on page 69 um Irina recounts her first kiss she knew that her professor a woman older well teacher like figure a woman older and more experienced than her was the one who desired the man that ended up kissing her um and uh you write and Jenya meditates I had won a game without quite understanding the rules to me this phrase says so much to the female experience um, what is this game and how do you win it without understanding the rules? <laughs> I think there's like a lot of these kind of triangulations of relationships in the book. You know, there's like her, the teacher and Oisip. And then later it's her, Oisip and this other woman. Um, and yeah, like the teacher was was really into a lot of these sort of like weird doll games or mind games or using her as sort of a puppet to get to him. But like it kind of relied on um, like her interest in him was triangulated to her teacher. Like she was interested in him only insofar as like the teacher has decided that he's somehow desirable. So therefore she's interested in him. But it's like, and she can't like be direct, you know, she, she's, she and the teacher don't have like a directly sexual relationship. It's like being used as this like external prop, you know? And I think the book in general, like talks a lot about this idea of like what you project on other people, you know, like what is actually there? What do you just project onto them? It's hard to kind of separate that out. I guess that's the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just to sort of directly answer the question, which I think you did, but that would be the game. Um, and then winning it without realizing the rules is also exactly that. It's it's a collection of misinterpretations. Um, I loved the incorporation of the character of Paul. He was so outside this book in so many ways, well, specifically outside of Jenya's entire family lineage, yet he never felt like an unnecessary character. Um, you know, he he's this queer spiritual medium who's sort of struggling in his own relationship and in his job in so many ways, and again, with alcohol. Um, and he just ends up trying to translate a story to, to, to this person because he thinks it's a spiritual destiny. And I guess I, I often wonder, like creating this character who is so outside but also so necessary 
I don't, we don't, I don't really like to spoil on Weird Era, so we won't say what happens, but you do sort of like, it's not to say that he dies, that he doesn't, or anything like that, but you just sort of like let him go at some point in the book. Um, and let him like recede outside of Jenya's story. And I sort of wondered how and when you knew you could come to that decision. What what helped you understand, okay, it's time to let him go from the story? Yeah, so he's like an example of a triangulation also, you know, like she needs him in order to receive her great-grandmother's story. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, what's his role in it? Well, also like her story is being passed through him as like an instrument and then it's also being translated. So it's like these stories are getting kind of warped and, um, you know, it's like a game of telephone almost or something like that. Um, but it's also like being passed through his body and it, and it affects his body. And I feel like bearing witness and like receiving another person's story is very heavy. You know, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. It takes a physical toll on a lot of people, um, especially like such a sad story and such a dark story, you know. And you're right. He does see it as sort of like his calling. It's like um, he feels a certain responsibility to channel it. But like it comes at a very high price for him. Um, yeah. I'm just like, huh. Huh. Thinking about like as a writer, your job to channel a story and the the um, the price that that comes with also. You you were saying that it sort of mimics the experience. Yeah, of just like when you're a writer and you feel like you're channeling these stories, you know, it also is like it is very physical. Like just writing is physically kind of taxing to just write an entire book sitting at the computer you know it 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 like has a physical toll that i feel like people don't really talk about that much it doesn't feel that dramatic to you know to just because you're just sitting there but it does have like a very physical um like it affects you physically it's, it's, it's hard yeah it yeah. is hard yeah um i love that you you kept using the word receive um, when it came to Paul, because on page 100, Paul wonders if wisdom is, is a thing that can be received. Um, and I suppose meant in the sense of not having been earned. And I, you know, I figure that's why readers read, to receive. Um, and I guess, would you agree with that? And if so, does that mean the answer to Paul's question is yes, that wisdom is a thing that can be received? Well, I think in the in that context, if I'm remembering correctly, it's sort of talking about like this idea that you can like teach another person some sort of like important life lesson that they themselves don't want to learn. And I do feel like really it's only through experience that we learn anything, you know, mm-hmm. and usually like negative experience, you know, so I think, like, this idea that you can just, like, shove wisdom into another person. Like, I'm a parent. I would love to shove some wisdom into into my child, for example. But, like, that's not usually welcome, you know? Um, Yeah. And I don't think it really, like, I don't think it really works that way. Um, Near the end of the book, you identify, um, you know, a baby in the book as a person who there was a person who really knew how to live in the essence of things, you write. Um, and in the context, you're alluding to all their want, because that's what babies 
are. They're just agencies full of want. Um, and is this exclusivity this of want another way of like looking at purity? Because I think about the purity of babies like all the time and the purity of children. And it's almost so pure that they're just exclusively about, like we always call babies pure because they're innocent or, you know, this and that. But like, are they also pure because all they know is how to want? That's such a good question. I feel like those two things actually seem kind of like conflicted with each other. Because when I think of, um, when I think of babies, it's like, yeah, they're just so um, unashamed of wanting things all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then like at, for an adult to just like make demands like a baby would um, <laughs> would be pretty annoying, but also it would be like, you know, it's just like, um, I don't know that I would think of that as innocent. I would be like, don't you feel shame? You know, I mean, it, it just seems like how can you just like want things Um <laughs> And be so just, like, open about it, you know, because that's one of Jane's things is that she wants lots of things, but she doesn't let herself acknowledge or admit to it, you know, for a, a large part of the book. And sort of this transformation that she goes through over the course of the book is, like, letting herself want what she wants, you know? And, um... I think we're taught not to want things or that it's not okay to want things or to feel ashamed for wanting things. Um, I mean, especially as women, Mm -hmm. but, you know, just, I guess just in general as like people in society, but yeah, to be finally like in touch with her desire um, is like, the kind of her, the beginning of her becoming like more actualized as a person rather than her being like doing the things that are expected of her um, and just sort of like having a pretty, you know, the, her life in the beginning is not really the life, a life that feels very like conscious or chosen. It's just kind of, she's doing, she's going through a lot of motions in her life and that changes as the book goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just love how, I I think if I remember correctly, you wrote that line as though it were a meditation of Jenya's herself, but, you know, it's also omniscient enough that it was sort of just like a line in the book. And I don't know, whatever, whoever was saying it, the tone was very much one of admiration, right, towards his baby. Um, And I just thought that that was so interesting because... Yeah, we rarely admire babies, and maybe we should. I don't know. (laughs) Babies know what they want. Yeah, and they're not—they're not not scared to ask for it. They're not scared to just demand it. Yeah, Um, the book is also so very funny. Like so many funny lines. Um, A lot of it is sort of the what I interpret as the classic. You know, as like a, a person who comes from an ethnic background is like the blunt language of like ethnic ancestors who just maybe have some sort of language barriers and the way that things come across that just end up being hilarious. Um, but I sort of wondered what, what does humor bring to this pretty emotional story? Because I have to say in this book, it doesn't really, ne- doesn't necessarily bring lightness. I don't think it lightens up the book because it's just full of like moms being mean, but it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, 
it's funny because like whenever I try to describe the book, I'm like, it's about ancestral trauma. And, you know, I'm just like describing it and it just it does not sound like it would be funny, you know, and then I'm like, but it's funny. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think humor is like a coping mechanism and I think people use it um, in that way all the time to like make sad and terrifying things like more bearable, you know? So I think that's probably it. You're right. There's a lot of really mean moms in the book. Shout out to my mom, who's nice. Yeah, yeah, I think there's like a lot of different kind of complicated mother-daughter relationships. And I do feel like there is a bluntness and directness that um, like seems very Russian, but also probably just like a lot of immigrant in immigrant families, it's just like that kind of directness. Yeah. Um, that is like, it didn't even occur to me that it was mean until, you know, other people um, say that. And then I'm like, oh, I, yeah, of course it's, it's not nice. That's even <laughs> funnier. <laughs> it's not funny. gentle. <laughs> it's definitely not like the gentle parenting that, you know, I've been trying to do, but. Yeah, it's, like, very abrasive. Like, I just feel like there's that kind of, like, no-nonsense. Um, like, I'll protect you by telling you the worst thing possible about yourself so that no one else can kind of thing, I think is, like, maybe where it comes from. No, I think that's so profound. And it's, like, I, it's something I bring up a lot. But, like, many, many moons ago, I used to do stand-up. And, like, I truly think that that's a great advice to pass on to stand-up comedian trying to write material. Like, it's a great way of eliciting laughter, I think. It's it's sort of one of those things of it's funny because it's true. Um, that's a great piece of comedic advice is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> I guess my last question to you is um, if if you had any – like, what are some of your favorite novels about motherhood, if, if any – Oh my God, I should have been more prepared for this. No, I feel like anytime anyone asks me for book recommendations, unless I, know, I write a list, one. it just like exits my brain. Um, well, I feel like there's, there like Rachel Cusk writes about motherhood really well. I, lo- I, lo- I love her. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 let me look around. Let me look around at what I got. Um, you know, I did, I did a lot of research, um, for my book, not necessarily like about motherhood because, um, I was kind of living, living motherhood when I was writing the book, but about like a lot of the Russian stuff. And there's this, um, there's this writer, Teffy, and her books are published in, like the New York Review of Books edition. And she, I actually don't think was ever a mother, but she wrote like, um, she just wrote, she, she wrote like at the time, during the time period of the revolution, um, these kind of like really breezy, like um, diary entries. And she, she wrote for like a newspaper and stuff like that. And it it had a certain, this maybe goes back more to your humor stuff. Like it was definitely like so dark and the humor was just like, ha, 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 ha. But then there's just like the horror underneath that. And it's just like, it's both so light, but if you just, but like, 
because if it wasn't light, it would just be like too penetratingly horrible. You know what I mean? Um, and it's like incredibly mm -hmm. funny. And so I would like highly recommend that. Um, but the other thing I was just going to say about motherhood is I feel like people often like the discourse around it is like motherhood is really hard. Um, you know, there's not, I'm in the U S there's like definitely not enough support around, um, parents or like parental leave or any of that stuff. And like, um, childcare is really expensive. All of that is like completely true, but mm -hmm. I feel like no one ever talks about like how it's fun, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's like, well, it's really fun. Like it's really fun. Kids are very honest and funny. Mm -hmm. You're and my favorite. Like, they're drunk. They're permanently yeah. drunk. That's what I always say, but like acceptably so. No, I absolutely am in agreement with you. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like, oh, I mean, I don't mean it like as in it's not all so hard or like mm -hmm. constantly trying to like impose your will onto like another person so that they like survive is like really um exhausting. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like it's it is also just like so joyful mm -hmm. and so funny and so light in a lot of ways. So I don't know. I'm sure there's books that reflect that. Um but I, I have yet to find them, to be honest. So, but I'm in full agreement with you. I, I, I think that that is true based on experiences that I've seen in my lived life. And honestly, just like how I feel about potentially becoming a mother. I just, I don't actually know, as I often tell people in these kinds of conversations, I sort of have to throw my hands in the air and yeah, but I do agree that it doesn't seem to be um, easily accepted. The narrative of how challenging it is, is a lot more I don't know, not prioritized because I'm sure it is very challenging, but um, it's unfortunate that we've lost the kind of dialogue about the joys of it, I think, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like this best kept secret type yeah. of thing. Because <laughs> it's just like, if it was just horrible, people wouldn't like keep doing, doing it, you know? <laughs> but which isn't to say that it isn't occasionally horrible, but like, it, yeah, it, it is just, it's like a very imbalanced, I feel like, conversation around parenthood. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Katya. That's all of our time. Thank you so much. Listeners, you can go ahead and pick up a copy of Mother Doll at Pulp Books in Montreal or your local indie bookseller. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so great to be on. Thank you.